Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media, and focusing on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In this episode, the English Department's resident Jesuit, Colton Bureau SJ, sits down with Byron Gilman Hernandez to discuss his work writing for the Jesuit Post and developing their web content, engaging the community across multiple platforms, moderating discussion, and using his own writing in the classroom. In this episode, Colton discusses his experience with composition in an internet-mediated dialogue with his audience. Hello, I'm Byron with Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, and joining me today is the English Department's resident Jesuit, Colton Biro. Hello there. And today we're here to talk with Colton because he's a writer for the Jesuit Post. We're going to talk a little bit about his experiences uh, working and promoting his writings. So Colton, can you tell us a little bit about what you do for the Jesuit Post? Uh, sure, yeah. So the Jesuit Post is a publication put out through American Media, and it's run by younger Jesuits, although that term younger is kind of a relative term in that most of us are not as young as you might imagine, but at least most of us are not yet ordained, except for those of us who are. But uh, my role at the Jesuit Post is actually uh, to do some editing uh, behind the scenes. I do promotion work, uh, which often deals with sort of the back end of the site, uh, making sure that the the publications are distributed, uh, setting them up on social media and monitoring threads and conversation on some of the articles. And also I do um, just regular contributing. Uh, I write for two sections and produce content for a third. One of the con- one of the sections is sort of spirituality focused, tends to focus on kind of creative nonfiction and um, something more akin to uh, personalized. And the other is actually in the pop culture section. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read your film reviews. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm sorry about those. <laughs> uh, we have strong disagreement about The Last Jedi, but... I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> but anyway... Um, Yes, uh, so you write for those, and you said you produce content for a section, second, for sorry, a third section. What does that mean? What's the difference between writing and content? So one of the teams I'm on is the. It has two names, partly because this section, depending on who's on it, refers to it by different names. Mm. So one is the social media team, uh, which in some sense deals with promotion, and the other is the creative team which every other team hates that name because they also think they're creative, Mm. and they are. Um, But the idea is that we're doing non-traditional content. So from that team, you get get memes. Uh, We'll do uh, not just memes, but we'll do quick little media threads, uh, polls, different ways in which to sort of up audience engagement on social media platforms. The other thing that comes from that section is something we've started kind of this past fall, which is the one-minute homily. Um, And the idea is to create a short video, about a minute long, um, and it features someone basically compressing the Sunday readings and reflection into a single minute, which is great. So you have to do a lot of multimodal work then, not only writing, but also creating like those image memes and also some audio recording. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's a fun sort of role in that it puts me in different ways. I'm sorry. It allows me to encounter the content in different ways and to create the content in different ways uh, with the hope that we're reaching out mm-hmm. um, to a variety of 
audience people. And yeah, and speaking of audiences, I mean, you described at the beginning that part of your role is promoting other your own and other people's writing to those audiences. Uh, what sort of process do you have for that? Well... So I'm scheduled for one day during the week. And what's fun about that is that one day during the week, I've got to make sure that I've read the article or piece that's about to go live beforehand, which seems like a really easy starting point, except mm-hmm. when the editor is slow and behind and suddenly it's 12.01. I don't know whether a piece is coming out the next day. And then at 12.35, I get a notification uh, via Slack that, oh, yeah, this piece has gone live. And you're going... Ah, Um, But from there, my goal is to distribute it. We use a program called Buffer, which allows me to interact with both Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, And I monitor the site directly on the back end as well and kind of follow the analytics there. Also, I'll use Canva, uh, which is sort of an image editing software. And my goal is to do at least four or five tweets per day for each piece to do two Facebook posts, and they're usually different. The first one is somehow, I like to do some sort of question or draw them in, Hmm. um, draw the audience in. If I can find a way to get the audience to like demand participation, that's really awesome. So this past Wednesday, I did one on a puppy and I was like, what's your favorite animal or something ridiculous like that? Total clickbait. For which I'm ashamed, except that the article did way too well for me to be too ashamed. So it was like, oh no. I'm ashamed, and yet this worked. The last temptation of the Jesuits. That's exactly it. Um, (laughs) And so so I may have sold my soul in that moment. Mm -hmm. But but so, yeah, so you mentioned you use Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And so you've got kind of not many different audiences as people, but you have to use different social media. Do you feel like the strategy of, like, what makes a good tweet, what makes a good Facebook post for promoting a blog? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that varies quite a bit. And it's not just for the blogs, but for any other piece, right? So weirdly enough, and I don't know why I know these bizarre analytics, but anything below 80 characters, no, it's not below 80 characters. It's below 60 characters on Facebook. That's what we're shooting for in the first Facebook post. Because anything longer than that, people don't read. Now, the funny thing is the second post during the day on Facebook, weirdly enough, if you include a giant block quote from the person's uh, writing... That goes really well. But if you do that in the first post, people aren't reading it. In Twitter, the idea is whenever we can tag someone, have an appropriate hashtag, but we kind of have an unofficial rule where it's the don't push too many hashtags. And part of that probably comes from experience where you're looking at someone's tweet and it's like the tweet is like hashtag this, hashtag it just gets obnoxious. And Mm -hmm. it, it tries to be clever in a way which is terribly unclever. So that's... The sort of, kind of the rule I like of hashtag engaging with hashtag brands. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing is, in the midst of that, so like Twitter, don't use too many hashtags, don't go overload, make sure that it's um, worthwhile. With uh, Twitter, the idea is a more engaging tweet because it seems to be more news service-esque, right? Mm-hmm. So often what we can do is I can talk more about the content that you'll encounter in this piece, right? Like mm-hmm. find out more about this, and that goes well on Twitter. The funny thing is, though, like on Instagram... It's literally a contest of how many tweets, uh, not tweets, how many hashtags can I put in? Mm. Um, Because the more hashtags I put in, the better it does, Mm -hmm. which is exactly contrary to Twitter and totally obnoxious on Facebook. Hmm. So it requires a little bit of a balance, um, both in the way in which you do that and also the way in which you engage kind of the discussion that flows from that. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, so you talked about how you're 
as a writer promoting these works and strategizing for different fields. But you also mentioned a little bit about, you said, use Canva. Yes. Um, and what do you use that for? So Canva is an image production kind of program slash site. So for each piece that I am doing promotion on, and sometimes for my own, although I personally, I always feel a little cheesy, like, handing what I've done, not only the work, like the piece, but also like, here's the promotion stuff I've done and handing it to someone else who has to promote it just because that feels like I'm doing all the work for them. Or, um... But Canva allows me to edit an image or to create an image. So often what I'll do is I'll take the sort of banner image from the actual piece when licensing allows me to do so and create from there some sort of memeable something, right? So the way in which the arrangement will usually have the title or title is important, but not required. Author name is important, but not required. We always put kind of the Jesuit Post logo on the mm-hmm. there. And I usually like to put read more at the JesuitPost.org somewhere in there. But often even the title and author name aren't as essential as finding a way in which to be engaging. So sometimes it's better instead of the title to put a question um, Mm -hmm. or it might be better to put sort of a series of words and then end with a question mark. Not a true question, but something that gets someone going, oh, that's curious. So in some sense, I'm like trying to create clickbait, but clickable engagement in a way in which allows the person to think. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is sometimes when you're reading a piece, What the piece is definitely about is not what the author thinks it's about, which is a strange disconnect. Mm -hmm. But every now and then you get someone who thinks that they've written a piece about such and such. And then you read it and you go, yeah, but the real crux of this piece is. And so the pack system from changing writing. is Right. (laughs) Right. It's a nightmare. And you're sitting here going like, I need to promote this piece. And you've given a lot of information on this. And the most important piece is this small paragraph here and seems to bind it together. How do I promote this? All right. So when I'm looking to promote these episodes of Eloquentia Perfecta on my Facebook, I mostly use words in all caps. Is that a thing that... Yeah, you should use words in all caps and a lot of exclamation points. Um, Certainly. <laughs> no, I I would personally avoid all caps. Um, if you can engage it with a question, if you can tag the person, mm-hmm. that's helpful. If you can in some way make it funny enough to where the person wants to find out more, right? So last week I ended up having to promote one of my own pieces. It was about a dog and the way in which a dog can teach faith and the way in which a dog's sort of innocence is a way in which to encounter faith, belief, and kind of anxiety. But that would be, if you were doing something like that, you could have the, almost like where you call out the author or the the person. So like, Mm -hmm. he thinks that a dog can teach him faith. Is he crazy or is he not? And that is just enough for someone to go like, well, I've, I've got to find out, right? Yeah. And it draws them in. And so we're talking about how to like um, engagement with that audience. And I know, um, talking to you before, that when you've gone your day to promote things, you're also on that day managing audience relations and the, the public relations of that Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. And after you've written the piece, after you've put out those tweets and promotions, do you have anything to say about your experiences moderating and engaging with audiences in the in the Twitter or the Facebook feed? Yeah. So some of the most interesting and also worst experiences I've had on the Jesuit Post have been from those threads, as one can imagine. The funny thing is, I have no idea 
what works and what doesn't work on sort of like what sparks the thread. As I was saying earlier, there was a there was this abortion piece, right? And it was coming out on that the day in which I was promoting and running the back end. And of course, like, I'm nervous. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm gonna have to be watching the site so carefully. And it got no traffic whatsoever. Or I mean, it got some traffic, but not the kind of engagement that I had. There was another piece not too long ago about a, a Cristo Rey, um, which is a school designed particularly for low-income um, areas of cities and things. And that piece got a ton of traffic and a lot of it kind of anti and angry about immigration. And the the piece was about like Our Lady of Guadalupe and like the kids enjoying a feast day. So you never know whenever you get a piece and you're like, oh, gosh, this is about abortion. I am about to be just flooded with this. Or like, oh, gosh, it's a boring piece about a feast day in the Catholic Church that kids enjoyed. But some of the difficulty actually comes in in the ways in which you have to engage with people on the different platforms. Um, Mm -hmm. So Twitter, I can't exactly delete the comments in the same way that I would like to sometimes. And sometimes we have several people who just simply troll us. As you can probably imagine, I'm pretty sure it's like the national pastime on Twitter. But the way in which the question becomes, do we engage directly because of the way in which the algorithms work to create circulation and create popularity? If I engage, so if you were to write a, a comment about like, this person sucks and da, as, da, da, I da, do. as you do in all caps with multiple exclamation points, if I engage that, it suddenly actually ratchets it up in sort of the popularity. Mm-hmm. So by, by actually acknowledging that you said something, I, in effect, make it more likely that what you have said goes sort of uh, is more widely distributed. Mm -hmm. Facebook is similar, although Facebook, I've got really more options about um, I I can either block the person, uh, which we try not to do ever. I can hide the comment except for that person, like except to that person, their friends and myself. I can delete the comment altogether which is nice. And I can also do that on Instagram in the same way, which is nice that I have those options. But Twitter, if it's out there, it's sort of good luck. Now, do you, do you ever have experiences where community engagement with the piece, people's posts and replies, <laughs> I don't want to say are good, um, but I mean like that has been like um, not just something you have to corral and mm-hmm. keep civil, but actually you've seen like people sharing their stories, people really engaging with the work and – that sort of thing we want to see from social media. (laughs) Right. Um, It certainly varies. So, I mean, we do have a lot of positive interaction on the threads and reactions to the articles. Sometimes it's, we've got a couple people who I think they read more of the articles than I do, which is impressive. And they're just like, Byron, you did so good. Great job. Thumbs up. And you're just like, okay. So you get some of those, but there are other times where you have people who genuinely are engaging with either trying to go for discussion, trying to push things. This past summer, I wrote an article on the Taylor Swift trial. It was uh, Don't Shake It Off. And part of the discussion that ended up springing from that, and it was something that I had to carefully monitor, was related to uh, experiences that people had. Because the article sort of central point was about the focus on the way in which we shouldn't We should not find it acceptable that we treat and accuse the victims as opposed to the people who are at fault. But 
what quickly ended up occurring was all of these people were adding their own stories, um, which was really touching. And comments about, like, I am so proud of Taylor Swift. She did what I couldn't do. Or um, what she did here, this is something I wish that I could have done. Now, Hmm. that was really wonderful engagement. There was at least one person that I had to slightly ratchet back because what she began doing from a pastoral counseling type of a view was pushing the lines of what should be public, which is difficult in that in some way that kind of topic invites participation and we're so thankful for it. And yet at the same time, when the person begins really, what they're doing is it's almost as if they were in a counseling setting and just using the thread to continue describing in in quite a bit of detail, but not in a way that's like, and now here's what we can do, or, and here's what this is, but more, this is what happened, and then this is, and you're just like, so that was a difficult conversation, mm-hmm. but it sprang from something good, right? Actual engagement with the article. And um, you were describing, like, from a pastoral care perspective, as a member of the Society of Jesus, how do you see your work with the, I mean, in, in the the field of Facebook and Twitter and uh, the Jesuit Post as part of your um, your mission. Yeah. So the Society of Jesus has always, I mean, its priority is the ministry of the word, which is in some way meant to be engagement, right? Particularly with pieces of culture and of science and of the world that are often on the fringe. So in some way, I feel like I'm continuing the sort of traditions that occur that have occurred for 500 years um now i'm not like ricci or someone else who's suddenly learning astronomy and like teaching science and other things heaven help us if i had to but there's something about it right part of our motto at the jesuit post as much as we have one is that faith that does relevance i'm not terribly sure that i like that motto but there is a sense in which Our entire goal is to either, A, insert ourselves into the conversation or pull the conversation away from itself. Mm. So either to jump into something that's already trending, right, and to kind of put in maybe a little bit more reflection into that. Can we look at this in a way, in a Catholic, but also a Christian or even just a thoughtful way and look at this as more than what it is or to pull the conversation out of itself, right? It seems to be spiraling. How do we pull this into something that people can actually engage with? Yeah, and um, so Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina being for a, uh, a podcast to help with the teaching of writing. I'm curious, as uh, with your experience teaching writing rhetoric here at SLU, have your experiences with the Jesuit Post influenced some of how you're teaching students how to do their own advocacy projects and the like? Yes, so certainly. My experience editing in particular was very useful. Um, The way in which we edit, depending on the section, varies. But part of the idea is every piece that we put out is not only a rhetorical object, but there is something about it that it is meant to affect a particular purpose. But what's nice is that gave me sort of some resources that were available for my classes. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned uh, previously, I used uh, a couple of the articles from the Jesuit Post and actually did an assignment with uh, changing writing in the PACT and the way in which that works. I I know you're not a huge fan, um, <laughs> and that's okay, but... Per- I still teach changing writing. Right. So I'm, I'm a fan enough. <laughs> right. I'm not sure that I like the book at, in itself as like a rhetoric textbook, but what I do like is that it is so process-driven, right? Mm-hmm. The 
the P-A-C-T in that order of creating and then the reverse order of the T-C-A-P, right, when you're evaluating. Mm -hmm. And in kind of doing that order, right, the process of like going towards something as if you're creating but also going backwards, that's where I pulled in a couple of the articles. Now, admittedly, last semester I had a section which was derived for people. It was um, a learning community, um, the MICA program. Mm -hmm. So faith has to be somewhere in there. Um, It's typically in a Judeo-Christian background. But what is also important is that service and justice are important aspects of their community. So I used several articles from the Jesuit Post. And after we had done a chapter, a chapter, several chapters from Changing Writing, what I did is I divided the group, the class up into four different sort of groups and each assigned them an article. Now, the beautiful part about the Jesuit Post is, with the exception of very few articles, almost all of our articles can be read in four minutes, right? Or less or more, barely. So I assigned the four and had each of the group sort of do the PACT, but backwards, right? What's the text of this? What's the context? And that was actually a big piece, mm. right? When did, was this published and what was going on in the world? Who's the, the geared audience towards? And then what was the actual purpose? What is, the, what is this piece trying to affect? So the four pieces I chose, I did one on service trips and selfies, which was published right around spring break for a lot of college. Uh, and it's definitely geared towards college campuses, a lot of the language. Um, another one, which is actually one of mine, which I'm not proud to have used one of my own, but it did something weird. And I kind of like that. It was an article entitled Offering a Welcome Home. And it was about church shopping But it was published right in the midst of the immigration sort of orders. Mm -hmm. And the idea is how do particularly Christians, like how do we respond to different people coming into our communities? Mm. And it's it's interesting because it was based on sort of true experiences. But the way in which I wrote it is definitely geared towards that immigration issue. Right. Mm. So it was a really good example of using the sussing out the context, changing the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that was the nice thing is pointing to the date as the the students were like, well, I don't know. You wrote about churches and you point to the date and go, look at when this was published. What else was going on? Uh, We had another piece on loving to hate, which was anger and public discourse, Mm -hmm. which particularly with a course that was geared towards an advocacy project related to justice. I wanted something along those lines. And this one came out during the primary season, where if you can remember, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure you've forgotten, um, it seemed like a contest to see who could speak with more hate and anger. Um, I will never forget the 2016 primaries. (laughs) Right. And, I mean, it was a contest that no one won. And Mm -hmm. so from there, it was kind of a good article on, like, what do we do with anger and how to address it? And is this the best way to bring into conversation in that? Mm -hmm. And the other one was uh, The Slaves Still Among Us, which was published on the 4th of July by Lucas Sharma, a young man of color. And it was very well done. But what's beautiful about it is, um, particularly for the class in which I had, which most were um, middle, upper class, white Americans, right? They've got one view of the 4th of July, and he was painting a very different picture historically of what kind of that holiday means for him and what patriotism means. So what was great about that is I divided them up into four. They went through these articles, and then they had to both provide a summary of what the article was saying and then break it down for their classmates. And they all did it on the board, and everyone got a little bit of a... um, a little bit of a sampling of kind of those Mm. things. And then I asked the students to read at least one of the ones which they were not in a group in and to respond to it as sort of their daily writing for the next day. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here, Colton. And thank you very much for uh, sharing your stories from uh, the Jesuit Post, teaching and moderating all those, uh, all that writing. Is there anything else you'd like to add before? No, I, I can't think of anything else. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today and thank you for listening. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Nathaniel Rivers, at nathaniel.rivers at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.